Thank you, Misfits, for that great introduction. That song was Walk Among Us, one of my favorite songs from one of my favorite group, The Misfits. And that being said, I want to welcome everybody to the next episode of the Straight from the Suburbs podcast. I want to thank everybody for the positive reinforcements and positive feedback that I've gotten low these past couple weeks when I started this podcast. It, it's been fantastic. I'm having a great time sharing all these stories with you, and I hope that you're enjoying um, listening to them as well. I'm going to wish everybody a happy belated Valentine's Day and a happy family day. I'm recording this on family day. Um, and so later on this afternoon, we're going to go hang out with uh, the kids and the family. But right now I thought I'd say, hey, you know what? I'd go to my straight from the suburbs family and I'll record the next episode for them. Now, what I'm going to talk about today is I'm going to, I entitled it All Along the River. And the river would be the uh, the Ottawa River. Now, this is a... A very famous river here in Ottawa. It flows the entire um, east to west of Ottawa and hooks up in, in Quebec. And I'll go into further detail about the Ottawa River um, later on in, in the podcast. But a lot of people drive by it. And, you know, where, where I grew up um, in in Ottawa, I guess Ottawa, Ottawa South, I suppose, you know, the, the river is there, but it's more of a, um, like a passerby river and a more throw rocks in the water kind of style river. Now they have people doing... Um, um, like, like not swimming in it, but they're doing um, like the stand-up surfboard kind of deal. And but and so that's what that's the, that's how I know the Auto River. Um, but I'm going to take you back a bit to the um, to the mid mid '90s when I when I was at college in the West End of Ottawa. Now, growing up in the South End of Ottawa, back in I'm not going to date myself, but back when when we when I was a uh, when I was younger, it was a long trek to get to the West End of Ottawa. And so when I started college in, in, in the West End of Ottawa, um, all of that whole entire area was more or less new to me. And I did see that the Ottawa River was not too far from where I was doing my studies. And so I'm going to take you on a, I'll be your, call me the, uh, the Crypt Keeper Riverboat. And I'll take you down a, a trip down the Ottawa River that you'll never forget. So have you ever driven past some somewhere Somewhere that you've actually never been and you've often wondered to yourself, what is that? What is that building doing there? Why are all those trees surrounding that building? What is like what what is that? It could be anything. It doesn't have to be a building, it could be anything, any sort of edifice. So that happened to me one time. As I said, I was going to college in the West End, and I don't know if I was skipping school or if I had a a, a break or if I had a um like a, a spare or something. But I had the car, the family car, so I jumped in the old Buick Saber and and I started just driving around the West End and I ended up by the river and I was fall I was driving down Carling actually. Now Carling is another, if you don't if you're not familiar with Ottawa Carling is a major intersect is a major road that also goes east to west and it kind of flow it kind of drives along alongside the um, the Ottawa River. And so in my little adventuring for that day, driving down Carling, looking at all these new things I've never really seen before, I. I I drove past, there's this old train bridge and I drove just, just past it and this building, I could see the top of this building from beyond the trees, you know, it looks like any sort of government building. I didn't really pay much attention to it, but what did catch my eye was this little brown, I'm going to call it a shack, but it was a bit more modern looking than, than your regular, than your regular garden shack. But this little shack had these huge, long, like very mysterious looking, um, antennas, okay, and the antennas—they seemed out of place for such a little building. Like the the antennas were like four or five times the size of this building. And I I remember driving past and thinking, "Huh, what is that?" 
And then I, I, I turned back around and I noticed that the, uh, the name of the, like it was sitting on the property of this bigger building, which was beyond these trees. And it was, it was, uh, the, 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 it was called Shirley's Bay and it was DRD, Def- Defense Research um, Department. And I was like, DRD, I've heard of DND. I've never heard of DRD. And the building just looked kind of, the little building just looked kind of out of place. And so I pulled into uh, where I could at Shirley's Bay and it ends up being right on the uh, right on the water of Shirley's Bay. And subsequently, since then, I've taken my family to Shirley's It's a good place to hang out for a picnic. I've taken friends there. And they've all said the same thing. If you ever get to Shirley's Bay, like Shirley's Bay is right by the... Um, the, the Connaught Armory. So you can hear gunshots going off, which is very weird as well. But Shirley's Bay has a very mysterious and eerie effect and feel to it. When you're walking around Shirley's Bay, there's not much of a beach. But what there is plenty of is that there's these, these rocks and like the, the ground itself. Now, the ground itself and the strange rocks, the strange rocks are very oddly shaped, almost like to a, to a molten effect to them. And that where you're standing... Um, like you, you park fine, but where you're standing by by the beach, I said there's no sand or anything really. Um, the rocks, it, it looks they're very flat, and they look like they've been fire blasted because it looks like they're all squared off. Like if you were to put bricks down, but they're not bricks. It's a rock. It's a rock that's been it's been split, and and they're it's pretty soft, and so you could almost even like you could like chip away at the rocks and lift up these sections of the rocks that come out perfectly square. Very odd. And walking around the whole thing, you'll also see a bunch of metal loops that are sticking out of the ground. And some of those metal loops have, have chains attached to them. And again, this is all on the Ottawa River. You know, to the, to, the, uh, to the north, you have right across the bay, you have Quebec. And to the west, you have um, some more, some, some hamlets and some, some, some smaller towns. And it eventually all leads all the way out to um, eventually to, the, to, the, um, to a bunch of... Um, a bunch of other lakes, Lake Temiskaming, and and uh, and eventually, you know, you can follow it down to the Great Lakes. But what I'm talking about is 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 the Ottawa cent- Ottawa centralized Ottawa River. It's very odd, and if you if you look around, especially at Shirley's Bay, you'll notice a, a lot of a lot of different things that that stick out to you, and a lot of different things that'll make you make you scratch your head and wonder, like, why is this here? As I said, there's these metal loops that are put that are sticking out of the ground. Some have chains attached to them. And it's 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 a very a lot of people don't notice, but you have to really keep your eye out. And there's some if you go further into where the the forested area where there's more trees and more bushes, there are some 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 outcroppings and some obviously new new plants. So it looks like there were some other building buildings there that have long since been destroyed or moved or or who knows. So all in all, Shirley's Bay really caught my attention that that fine day back in it must be like ninety seven or ninety eight. And so I remember I, the next day I went back to, to back, when I was back at school, um, again, maybe I was playing hooky because I went right to, right to the computer lab because um, I wasn't going to use the, the, the computer at my parents' house. The good old 486 dial-up modem would not do the trick in that particular instance. So, and, and I started looking at Shirley's Bay and some things came up about Shirley's Bay that I found quite interesting. And I'm going to share them with you today. So as I said, I'm going to take you on a riverboat cruise down this down the fine Ottawa River, and I, I will explain a bit further more about the Ottawa River. But let's start at Shirley's Bay. That'll be our central starting point. Okay. And then from Shirley's Bay, we're going to go west, and then we're going to come back east, and then we're all going to finish everything back at Shirley's Bay. So 
Shirley's Bay is a very interesting area. And I'm going to take you on a get in your time machines, y'all, because we're going to take a trip back to the 1950s. And during the 1950s, you know, the, the world was at a different state, a different place. The nuclear war was, you know, at the tip of everyone's tongue and at the fingertips of, of, uh, of world leaders. And so everyone was scared and everyone was, was in sort of paranoia. And during the 1950s, that was, actually it was in 1947, but during the 1950s, that's really when the UFO phenomena started to really, really sink in and to really have a lot of sightings. So, you know, the general public and government agencies from all around the world, they reacted to the, these public sightings. You know, a lot of people made a connection between these public sightings and the threat of nuclear war, you know. And so this is an international phenomenon. And Canada was not without its own concerns regarding this UFO phenomenon. You know, there's a lot of talks about it. And Diefenbaker, you know, lo and behold, he he was the, the prime minister uh, at that time. And he actually took a lot of meetings that went undisclosed up until they were uh, that information was released in 2011, but he took a lot of meetings regarding the uh, regarding the UFO phenomenon. So him and the rest of the Parliament, Parliament Hill fat cats they created a special investigation unit in Ottawa, and that the name of that of that of that program was called Project Magnet. Okay, so a lot of people haven't heard about Project Magnet. What it was that Project Magnet it was a UFO study program, and it was established by the Canadian Department of Transport, aka DOT, DOT. And it was it was birthed on December second, nineteen fifty. So Canada was very quick to respond because it was it was Kenneth Arnold, this pilot, who actually coined the term um, "flying saucers," and that was in nineteen forty seven when he was a pilot and he found he saw these these moving discs in the sky while he was doing a flight over um, over Washington State back in forty seven. So you know, between forty-seven and fifty, Canada was actually pretty quick to respond, which is uh, quite surprising. I found out during during my research. And so what happened is, Project Magic Magnet was started December second, nineteen fifty, as I previously mentioned, and it was led by this gentleman called Wilbert B. Smith. Now, very cool. The B in Wilbert B. Smith stands for Brockhouse. You know, they don't make names like that anymore. Wil Wilbert Brockhouse Smith. That's a that name's badass, man. And so. Um, Smith, he was a government electronic engineer, and he was internationally recognized in his field of radio communication. That was his specialty. And he held hundreds of patents and received numerous awards for his work. He was, an he was, he was top dog. He knew his stuff. And so com Project Magnet combined with, with the DOT, Department of Transport, the Defense Research, Research Board, DRB, and the NRC, they were the ones who combined to get this project started. And they combined to determine that if UFOs did really exist, that as a as a as a total group, they hypothesized that there were that that those UFOs they might hold the key to a new source of power using the Earth's magnetic field as propulsion. Hello, Tesla. Does this ring a bell with anybody? This is this is something that um, that has been investigated just right after that as well, and a bit in and a bit before that as well. And so this, all this info, information I'm talking about, it was declassified in 2011. And it also showed that Project Mag, uh, Magnet teamed up with the CIA, our friends down south, with the CIA in a joint effort to study and harness the possibility of this new UFO power source. So, you know, once Canada got started with their investigations at Shirley's Bay, you know, their little secret... Kabbalah group of, of uh, like-minded government individuals and governmental groups, they got together and, you know, they were helping each other out.
And so with the help of the CIA, Project Magnet Geomagnetic Studies grew. That was their main specialty, geomagnetic studies, and that grew. And in 1952, two years after they, after they opened, their lab moved to the secret of Shirley's Bay government facility where you could drive by to this day, where I drove by and that piqued my curiosity because I've never seen that building before. Wow. And incredibly enough, in 1952, it became the world's first UFO research facility right here in Ottawa, the world's first UFO research facility. That is incredible news. And if you think about it, that predated Project the, in the, the, the world famous, Hollywood famous Project Blue Book by two years. It's incredible how you think that our Project Magnet, our Shirley's Bay, predated the internationally known Project Blue Book by two years. So what happened is, um, Project Magnet at Shirley's Bay had a had an uh, had a couple offices in the Shirley's Bay Research Center, but just beyond that, as I said, be, it, it it goes Shirley's Bay, the water, then Shirley's Bay Research Facility, the building, then a series of trees that are that are masking the building, not very well, mind you, and then in front of that, there's a small clearing where this where um, Will, Dr. Wilbert Smith set up his um, his research center. So what he was afforded was a 12 by 12 foot outpost building that housed high tech instruments like gamma ray counters, messing up the name, mag magnetometers, radio receivers, and a recording gravimeter with a 50 mile radius. So this is high tech stuff back in 1952. And this is the same building that, that I drove by. And so, um, as I said, the project management team, it was led by Smith, and he had a handful of, of, uh, of uh, scientists and investigators under his lead. And what they did is that they conducted per, uh, experiments, you know, and they, they monitored and they, they manned the, um, the small 12 by 12 building 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So they, they were in it to win it. And they recorded a bunch of uh, anom uh, an anomalies and they got a bunch of positive results. You know, and so throughout those positive results, eventually something major happened. Okay. The facility soon had their most unusual occurrence. Okay. So it opened, as I said, opened in, in 1950, but I'm going to jumpstart you up to August 8th, 1954. At 3.01 on an overcast day in the afternoon, their instruments, all their instruments went haywire. And what happened is, is that all the instruments registered a very unusual disturbance. And in Smith's word, this is I quote, the gravimeter went wild. Okay. And so after um, a much greater deflection was registered than could be explained by conventional interference. So what happened is that the gravimeter it shot up some sort of um, magnetic, not propulsion, but magnetic um, uh, recording rays into the sky, and it recorded a huge deflection. You know, now and then they would record the planes passing over by, which is which um, the, uh, the planes had to have special clearance to fly over Shirley's Bay as well. So it was very odd. It was very few and far between that they would record planes, and so what and. Planes are a very small blip on the gravimeter. But what happened is on this fateful day, August 8th, 1954, they recorded a much greater deflection that was registered that can be explained by any conventional interference. And so as a whole, the entire lab, they raced outside, they rushed outside, and they vaguely saw the outline of a disk beyond the clouds. 
as I said, it was a cloudy day. So the disappointment lay in that it was cloudy, but they went on record saying that they could see the outline of a disc rotating right above them. So the, as I said before, the disappointment stemmed from the physical lack of visibility due to the heavy clouds that uh, that happened on that overcast day. But they could they could make out the outline and some lights just beyond these dark clouds. And so the scientific evidence the research had of this large UFO was a deflection recorded by the gravimeter. So that was the big thing that hasn't been, that was never that has not been recorded uh, any time around 1950 at all. And so quickly the news got out. They meant to keep it. They meant to keep it um, in house, but but some whistleblower actually got out to the Ottawa Citizen. And I'm gonna and I, what I did, I went ahead and, and I pulled an uh, an article from uh, the Ottawa Citizen um, from August 10th, so two days later, 19, 1954. So I'm gonna find it here. I have it right here. I'm going to read it verbatim. So the, the, um, the headline reads, Machine Records Saucer. And it goes on to say, is Canada the first country to the, to the world to record a flying saucer with instruments? That question is being debated here today after the Transport Department's Flying Saucer Sighting Station reported that it had detected an unexplained object in the stratosphere over Ottawa on Sunday. Wilbert H. Smith, engineer in charge of the broadcast and measurement section of the transport department, said the saucer station's gravimeter was tipped at 3.01 p.m. The gravimeter is designed to detect and to record gamma rays, magnetic fluctuations, radio noises, and gravity, and record changes in the atmosphere. So, wow. So, that made the news. Okay, they weren't happy about it making the news, but it made the news. Now, two days after the news was broke through through the Ottawa Citizen article, um, you're not going to believe it, but it went from success to being an, in an inevitable letdown. Two days later, Project, Matic Re Project Mad Magnet Research Facility at Shirley's Bay, believe it or not, was shut down. It was only open for four years, and it was shut down. Now, so... Within my research, many speculate that the findings and strange occurrences at Shirley's Bay prompted the operation to go underground. So it could be continuing today, but on an underground basis. But officially, it was shut down. All documents were sealed under top secret lock and key. And so it, everything was effectively closed down. But this didn't, this didn't stop Wilbert Smith. He was so turned on by his UFO success that he soldiered on privately with his own money and some private investors. So this guy, he was, it, something piqued his curiosity. And this is a very educated man. And this guy was in it. He was deep and he wanted to know more. And he continued his research under his own financial um, guidance. And he got some investors, but Unfortunately, Wilbert Smith died in 1962. And so before Smith died in 1962, he presented his research and paperwork and finished off with this quote. I'm going to read the quote directly from him, from his, uh, from his paperwork. We have conducted experiments that show that it is possible to create artificial gravity, centrifugal, not centrifugal force, and to alter the gravitational field of the Earth. Of Earth, sorry, not of the of Earth. This we have done. It is fact. The next step is to learn the rules and do the engineering necessary to convert the principle into workable hardware. Wow. 
So Wilbert Smith, he was onto something. He found something out. He did his research. He made some major advancements, and then he was shut down. You know, this is the uh, this is a, a typical story that, that continues today. This is a typical story. You find success that people don't want you to find, and they shut you down, which is really unfortunate because I think Wilbert Smith and his team of scientists were really onto something. So, you know, disappointingly, it was shut down, but the Project Magnet building stood right by the Defense Research and Development Canada, DRD, at Shirley's Bay until 2011, when Building 67, that's what it was called, Building 67, it's a cool name, it was torn down in 2011. It's, it's really too bad that it was torn down because it was something that was very interesting. You know, I'd be able to, uh, right now I'm looking at some pictures before and after 2011. You could see the building. That's the same building that I saw in Building 67 off of Carling Avenue. And now it's destroyed. And now there's, there's a, you know, there's a little outcropping, but there's, there's nothing left of it, which is very unfortunate. You know, and so all that research that was done at Shirley's Bay, all that research that was done by by Wilbert Smith, you know, where did it go? What what happened to it? What 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 is it being used? Was it being used? And so, after the death of Wilbert Smith, um, in the files of Wilbert Smith, there was a 1953 reference to a rumor of a flying saucer at the Avro plant in Malton. Okay, now Malton is a bit; it's closer to Toronto, but as I said, along the Ottawa River. There's tributaries that lead down through the, the hamlets of Ottawa Carleton, um, Corkery, uh, Carp, all that thing. And you keep going west, you're going to hit Toronto. You're going to hit Malton. And you're going to hit the infamous and the world famous and one time technology world leader, Avro. So the Avro saucer is described by Wilbert Smith as 40 feet in diameter circular in shape with trailing edges and it's capable of speeds of up to 1500 miles an hour it could do 180 degree turns and it can do vertical takeoffs you know this is the prototypical flying saucer ufo description um, the paperwork went on to say that it had a turbine power plant inside which was unheard of back in the 50s that provided propulsion and a gyroscopic stability incredible and it appears that the Royal Canadian Air Force, RCAF, and Avro, they collaborated on building flying saucers, also known as the AV-9 and the VZ-9. So those are the, the, the two types that, they, that the RCAF, Royal Canadian Air Force, and Avro collaborated on, the AV-9 and the, and the VZ-9. Now, rumor has it that the RCAF captured a flying saucer. You know, this information is thanks to the Shirley's Bay Project Magnet. You know, and um, there was there was rumors and testing that, that as well that they were reverse engineering it. You know, if you ever if if any government agency ever catches a flying saucer, which I think they have, of course they're going to reverse engineer it. This is the the weapon to end all weapons. This is the flying technology to end all flying technology. And the rumor also goes on to say that the U.S. military were using the VZ-9 as a smokescreen for test flights of their own real captured spacecrafts. Okay, so were they 
taking the information that the uh, that the Canadians w were doing it were doing and using that to make their own or or the or the other way around, and you know, it, it's it's fact that Avro um, had U.S. military contracts as well as Canadian. And you could see that the U.S. they had a documented military presence in Malton, Ontario. You know, they were on site with the Avro company. Um, they had hangars in Malton uh, contracted to them by Avro, who collaborated with the National Steel to overhaul uh, Mitchells. They were, Mitchells were a, a very famous U.S. airplane. Well, why were they doing that? What were they doing? Why were they why were they collaborating with Avro in Malton? alongside national steel what were they doing there why and what is the is the major questions and that i don't know now i've dug up some documents that show that on the compound an engine test house technician the name has been redacted it he went on to record um some in an interview the, the, the these following quote the these following quotes on project magic project magnet projects and i have those quotes here let me Get them here. I have a bunch of paperwork here in, in Superhero Studios. So if you bear with me, I'm going to go through um, some quotes about this this um, this engine test tech technician. Now he says that he saw a flying saucer in the Avro hangar in 1951, and this is this is his account. And again, his name has been redacted. I, I couldn't find that out. So he he says when I went to work at AV Avro. In 1951, I saw in a hangar what appeared to be a spacecraft. It was round and clamshell shaped and painted army khaki, a brownish green, a little darker than the color of army uniforms. Probably some cheap paint they scrounged from the army. It was metal, but I couldn't tell what kind of metal since it was painted. If you kicked it, it rang. It was roughly 10 to 12 feet in diameter and three to five feet in height. It had no provision for a pilot and no means of flight control engines or rockets. If necessary, these could have been added later. It had to be a secret project to a certain extent, but nobody knew very much about it, and that bothered me. I made many inquiries about it, but got no answers. I talked to dozens of guys who worked in that hangar, and none of them had worked on the saucer or seen anyone else working on it. Nobody seemed to know who the saucer belonged to or why it was there. About three months later, towards the end of 1951, it was gone. I don't know what happened to it. I suspect they picked it up with an overhead crane one night and dumped it in a truck and drove it off to Uplands to get it out of the way. It was there one day and gone the next. The guys who worked in that hangar had no idea where it had gone. I don't know if it was made by Avro, made by National Steel, or manufactured elsewhere and brought in. I suspect it was made by the Americans as a special project and moved up here when their funding was cut off. I think they parked it in here under the heading of another project. Wow. So this guy, he's making a connection between Avro and Uplands. Now, for y'all that don't know, and I will mention it later on in, in this broadcast, that um, Uplands is the 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 army the army uh, airport the army base in more or less uh, in in the east end of Ottawa. So he's making connections between Malton, Ontario, between the Avro Corporation, uh, between the American military, between UFOs and um, and Uplands Army Air Force Air Base up here up here in Ottawa. Now this is major stuff. So. 
Fast forward to 1956, Avro was back to being all Canadian. They worked hard and the best engineers in Canada geared up to produce a futuristic aircraft, the now world famous Avro Arrow. So when the Americans left, the Canadians were able to concentrate all their work on making the very famous Avro, Avro, Arrow, Avro Arrow. Now this plane was light years ahead of any existing plane in the world. You know, where, where did this technology come from? This is highly technological stuff back in 1956. A lot of people, you know, and it, I love thinking that, that Canada had the leading uh, aero technicians working on this and they and they're all Canadian and they made the arrow. Where'd the, but, you know, you hesitate to think, where was this information coming? Where was this technology coming from? Could it be saucer tech? You know, and then soon after leaving, the advancement of, of that the Canada was making with the Avro Arrow, the advancement upset the U.S., you know, the prospect of Canada eclipsing them did not sit well at all. So, you know, they flexed their strength. U.S. pressure, it mounted, and, you know, they accused Canada of stealing American tech when they were there, uh, when they were in Malton. And the U.S. presence uh, pressure, the mount, it mounted. And finally, PM, Diefenbaker again, he buckled and he ordered that the arrow was scrapped. What? Unbelievable. He just scrapped it right then and there. You know, Deef, the chief, announced on February 20th, 1959, that the Arrow project has been scrapped. You know, and when he did that, 15,000 people lost their jobs. 15,000 people lost their jobs. Incredible. It's, it's a real disappointment. Now, they only made six arrows. And those six arrows were ripped apart. They were destroyed. The blueprints destroyed. You know. I hesitate to think that I don't believe that that they can't just take all that hard work and all that hard, all that international recognition and get rid of it. I don't believe that they scrapped it entirely. You know, how could they? All that all that work, all that time, all that effort, all that money back in the 50s. You know, something something doesn't sit right there. You know, and so Avro tried to continue, but left without contract. Sorry about that. I just found out something about the uh but the, 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 the podcast uh, company I use, it, it's half an hour spot. So I didn't realize I was talking for so long. I have a lot to go through. So let me pick up to where we left off. So uh, a slight uh, revision, I mean, um, a slight review. They only made six hours, uh, arrows. They were ripped apart. They were destroyed. The blueprints destroyed and all that. You know, I don't believe that, that any of that happened. I think it still exists. And so moving forward, Avro was left without contracts. You know, they were fully engrossed and fully invested in the arrow. And when that was scrapped, they had nothing to work on. And so eventually Avro soon closed after that as well. You know, but the flying saucer story, it did not die with the arrow. I'm going to jump kick you up to, I previously mentioned before, Uplands Base here in Ottawa. Royal Canadian Air Force at Uplands, 1963. An airman went public saying he saw a disc-shaped vehicle. You know, was this the same saucer seen at Avro in 1951? The fate of the arrow obliterated any thoughts about the fate of the saucer rumored to be hidden in one of the hangars. So as soon as Avro was gone, so was the UFO mystery, you know. So it went from Shirley's Bay down to, the, down to Avro, Technology passed on to the Avro Arrow, subsequently closed down, 
and there and then once that's closed down there goes the, there goes there goes the mystery you know but you know but it continues on it continues on with more sightings throughout the world but i'm sticking here in ottawa and so from westerly malton ontario avro we're going to take a river cruise doo -doo -doo -doo, up the Ottawa river back closer to Shirley's bay okay i'm going to take you back to november 4th 1989 okay on the night of november 4th exactly I'm not going to do the math, but many years ago, in the glorious year, which was 1989, one of the most bizarre and unexplained stories in UFO circles occurred. And this was known as the Guardian case. Okay. And now the Guardian case centered around the supposed crash of an extraterrestrial craft in a swamp west of Ottawa near Mannion Corners, a place, you know, we all know very well. So the Guardian case, it's, it, it really is, this is something that it's going to be, you guys are going to be interested in this. It's a fantastical story of UFO crashing into a swamp west of Ottawa, and it begins when a gentleman by the name of Tom Theophanis of the, Uf, of the Canadian UFO Research Network called QFORN, C-U-F-O-R-N, he received a package from someone calling themselves Guardian. So with no return address on the package, it was curiously opened by him. And within the package, he found a written claim that an alien craft was recovered from a swamp in West Carleton that involved both the U.S. and Canadian security teams. Now, he got in touch with a gentleman called Graham Lightfoot, and he's a UFO researcher living in Ottawa. And together, they were dispatched to verify these explosive claims. And he interviewed some residents, Mr. Lightfoot, he, he interviewed some residents in the area um, mentioned by the Guardian and about anything unusual that, that may have occurred on the night of November 4th, 1989 to substantiate his claims. One person in particular that he interviewed was a, was a lady named Diane Labanek, and she's going to come back later on in the story as well. So Diane Labanek, she was a resident of the area. And she said that on the night of November 4th, 1989, she witnessed an intense bright light pass overhead, heading towards a swamp at the far end of the field south of her home. She said she saw several helicopters earlier that evening using bright lights to scan the area. Another resident said, her, said their cattle was dispersed by something, and it took a while to recover them all again the next day. So something spooked those animals. And another couple in the area told uh, Mr. Lightfoot about a very bright light that shone through their south-facing bathroom window. It reached right down the hallway, they said, and the, the same, the wife of the couple also recalled, also recalled hearing the sound of helicopters that evening. So that particular evening, back in 80, 1989, you have all these multiple witnesses of something in the sky. You know, what, what did they see? What, what was going on? And what was, it, what was involved with that Guardian letter, that Guardian letter that was put in? So I got my hands on a copy of the, of the Guardian letter. I'm just trying to find it here. And it's, it's pretty fantastical. So you do have to take it with a grain of salt. But, you know, as I always say, anything can happen. And who knows? 
you know, this could be bang on of what was happening. So bear with me. I'm going to read through it. Um, and hopefully we could get some sort of um, answers from this. So it starts off with the Canadian and American security agencies are engaged in a conspiracy of silence to withhold from the world the alien vessel seized in the swamps of Corky Road, Carp, in 1989. UFO sightings in the Ontario region had intensified in the 1980s, specifically around nuclear power generating stations. On November 4th, 1989, at 20 hours, Canadian Defense Department raiders picked up a globe-shaped object traveling at phenomenal speed over Carp, Ontario. The UFO abruptly stopped and dropped like a stone. Canadian and American security agencies were immediately notified of the landing. Monitoring satellites traced the movements of the aliens to a triangular area right off of Almont and Corky Roads. And he provided, uh, there's pictures um, through Google Maps that, that I got of the... Um, of this triangle in the middle of the field. Um, it's like, like burnt into it, very weird. Anyway, back to the letter. The ship had landed in deep swamp near Corky Road. Two AH-64 Apaches and a UH-60 Blackhawk headed for the area the following night. The helicopters carried full weapon loads. They were part of a covert American unit that specialized in the recovery of alien craft. Flying low over Ontario pine trees, the Apache attack choppers soon spotted a glowing blue 20 meter in diameter sphere. As targeting lasers locked on, both gunships unleashed their full weapon loads of eight missiles each. All 16 were exploded in proximity bursts 10 meters downwind from the ship. The missiles were carrying Vexon, a deadly neuroactive gas which kills on contact. Exposed to air, the gas breaks down quickly into inert components. Immediately after having completed their mission, the gunships turned around and headed back across the border, which isn't too far. Now the Black Hawk landed. As men exploded from its open doors, in seconds, the six-man strike team had entered the UFO through a seven-meter hatchless oval portal. No resistance was encountered. At the controls, three dead crewmen were found. With the ship captured, the U.S. Air Force, Pentagon, and Office of Naval Intelligence were notified. Through the night, a special team of technicians had shut down and disassembled the sphere. Early the next morning, November 6, 1989, construction equipment and trucks were brought into the swamp. The UFO parts were transported to a secret facility in Canada, Ontario. Shirley's Bay, maybe? Anyway, back to the letter. As a cover story, the locals were informed that a road was being built through the swamp. No smokescreen was in was needed for the military activity as Canadian forces regularly trained in the CARP region, which is true. Officially, nothing unusual was reported in the area, although someone anonymously turned in a 35mm roll of film. It was received by the NRC National Research Council of Canada in Ottawa. The film contained several clear shots of an entity holding a light. At this time, the photographer is still unidentified. The humanoids were, were packed in ice and sent to an isolation chamber at the University of Ottawa. CAA psychologists performed the autopsies right there in Ottawa. The reptilian fetus-headed beings were listed as Class I NTEs, non-terrestrial entities. Like others recovered in previous operations, they were muscular, gray-white skinned humanoids. The ship was partially reassembled at the underground facility in Canada. Unlike previous recoveries, this one is pure military. Built as a starfighter, it is heavily armed and armored. 
In design, no rivets, bolts, or welds were used in fastening, yet when reconstructed, there were no seams. The UFO itself is made up of a matrix dielectric magnesium alloy. It is driven by pulsed electromagnetic fields generated by a cold fusion reactor. All offensive capabilities util utilize independently targeting electronic beam weapons. In the cargo hold were found ordnance racks containing 50 Soviet nuclear warheads. Their purpose was revealed by advanced tactical combat computers located in the flight deck. The most important alien tech find were, were the two millimeter spheroid brain implants surgically inserted through the nasal orifice. The individual can be fully monitored and controlled. The CIA and Canadian government have effectively supported mind slave experiments for years. Currently, the University of Ottawa is involved in ELF wave mind control programs, a continuation of the CIA psychological warfare project known as MKUltra, started at the Allen Memorial Institute in Montreal. If you know anything, if you know anything about MKUltra, that is a rabbit hole to go down. This is verifiable fact. I'm not going to go into it right now because it'll take uh, it'll take a long time. But the, it was the American government and the Canadian government were involved in some sort of mind control program, and they did have elements of it here in Ottawa and and in uh, Montreal, if I'm not mistaken, as well as uh, throughout the U.S. Okay, but back to the letter. Most done. Uh, using ELF signals transmitted at the same wavelengths the human brain uses, the researchers could subliminally control the test subjects. The alien implants utilize the same principles, except that the whole unit is subminiaturized and contained directly in the brain. Fortunately, the implants can be detected by magnetic resolution scanning technology. So, like that is a big claim. You know, so a lot of it seems completely, you know, you're reading it, you think, oh, this is kind of ridiculous. But as I said, you know, um, stranger than fiction, who knows? Uh, so let's see if anything within Guardian's letter could actually be true. So the first claim, claim number one, Canadian and American security agencies were immediately notified of the landing. Monitoring satellites traced the movements of the aliens to a triangular area. And so... I, got, I downloaded a, an aerial map of Almont and the, the surrounding area, specifically Corkery Road. And the images I'm looking at, they clearly show both an unusual triangular-shaped area of land and the swamps below, you know, where the craft was apparently recovered. So you, you could see that, you know, and I'm not saying there's an object there, but there's a, there's a, a depression in the ground. So, you know... True, like zooming onto the property area mentioned on a current Google satellite maps where I'm looking, um, the Guardian claimed the craft had crashed. There is indeed, like there's a triangular area of land that is adjacent to the swamp. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's there. <laughs> so clearly something had pressed, something heavy had pressed itself down on that ground. Claim number two. Two AH-64 Apaches and UH-60 Blackhawks headed for the area that following night. The helicopter carried off full weapon loads. They were part of a covert American unit that specialized in the recovery of alien craft. That's true. The unrelated witnesses in the area said that they saw and heard helicopters and bright lights that evening. You know, that's uh, punto final. That's, that's the beginning, beginning of the end of it right there. Claim number three. The UFO parts were transported to a secret facility in Canada, Ontario. You know, this could be true because I'm taking you back to the DRDC, Department of Research Defense Canada, Shirley's Bay, 
you know, right in right in Shirley's Bay, there's a government research facility, which we went over in great detail before, where classified Defense Department projects are worked on called DRDC. You know, and so Defense Research and Development Canada, they have some sites that claim that there's an ongoing alien craft reverse engineering project. You know, it's not it's it's not confirmable, but you, you could speculate that that is what's happening there with all the strange occurrences and the and the the odd secrecy of, of this of this building. And finally, uh, last but not least, claim number four. Uh, the CIA and Canadian government have actively supported mind-safe experiments for years. Currently, the University of Ottawa is involved in ELF wave mind, culture, mind control programs, continuation of the CIA psychological warfare known as MKUltra, started at the Allen Memorial Institute in dun, 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 Montreal. <laughs> so this is this is partially true. Um, it's it's true that the MKUltra program operated mind control experiments from the Allen Institute in Montreal during the 1960s, and they were um, experimenting with extremely low frequency ELF, as we mentioned before. Um, you know that has been the subject of many conspiracies that the mind could be controlled with these signals. I know it's kind of a bit off topic with my with my riverboat cruise, but you know this is something that that ties in all these strange occurrences. So moving forward, it's another two years later, 1991. Two years later, the Guardian submitted a second claim. You know, he did the first one, now he's doing a second claim and a package of yet another UFO landing at the exact same site west of Ottawa. You know, and you could find out all about this in, in what I'm going to tell you, as well as you know, this made international news and it was actually picked up in the 1990s, 1991 um, on Unsolved Mysteries by hosted by the, you know, classic, classic TV show hosted by, by the late Robert Stack. And I'll give you the episode, uh, the episode number and name, if I could find it here. Um, can't find it now, but yeah. So this was actually documented by, by NBC by the investigators at Unsolved Mysteries. So a bit about Guardian claim number two. Um, again, it involved Diane Labanek from um, the Guardian number one, West Carlton resident. And um, some again, she witnessed some strangeness at on her farm. So late at night, she says she witnessed a flying disc landing close to the swamp on her property where she witnessed strange occurrences two years earlier. So this, the exact date is August 18th, 1991, around 10 p.m. You know, her dog started to bark and she looked out the window. And what she first saw was a, a circular, she called it controlled flames in, in her field, in, a, in a, a circle of controlled flames in her field. And then um, from, from the right, she witnessed a ship coming down. You know, the top blue was flashing bright with these flashing lights. And she said, she watched this for around 10 minutes. So that's quite a long thing. That's quite a long uh, a witness, uh, witness account. You know, af after around 10 minutes, the ship reversed over itself and it went over the trees and it disappeared. And, and soon after the ship um, took off, the, the flames extinguished and it, it, it came back to being pitch black. No sooner later than, 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 than the flames were extinguished and pitch black came back, helicopters flew by really low over a house, crisscrossed the field, and then left. 
you know, the following day, you know, she didn't know what to think. So she went back outside to see if she, she could find any, any evidence. You know, she went outside and she couldn't find any evidence. So she kept this to herself due to her not being able to find the evidence. She wouldn't be ridiculed. She didn't want to be um, thought of a, of a pariah in a small town. So she kept it to herself. But in February 1992, somebody mailed a VHS videotape to an ex-NASA mission, uh, mission specialist, now UFO researcher, a gentleman named Bob Oshler. And he lived in Maryland. And again, the strange package, it was full of documents, maps, and a videotape labeled by dun, 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 the Guardian. So he's back. The Guardian is back. And so Mr. Um, the, the NASA mission specialist, Dr. Uh, Dr. Bob Oshler, um, he put in the video. And the video depicted the flames that, um, uh, that uh, the witness saw, Diane Labanek saw. And then all of a sudden, a dark disc-like object with pulsating blue light came down. And he was flabbergasted. Bob Osher was like, what is this? And again, like um, he was mystified. So what he did, he presented this tape to a very famous gentleman named Dr. Uh, Brian Maccabee. And he's an internationally known photo analyst expert. He's used by NASA. He's used by government departments all around the world. And he determined that this video was authentic. And he wanted to say that the, uh, the disc-shaped object coming down is around 20 to 30 feet in diameter. It's large. It's huge. And um, he said, as I said before, he deemed this as authentic. And then Dr. Um, uh, Dr. McAbee presented, again, this same videotape to a NASA Jet Propulsion Laboratory specialist, a gentleman called Dr. Robert Nathan. And again, Dr. Nathan deemed the tape as unexplained. He was flabbergasted as well. He didn't know what to think of that. And going back to the to the letters that were attached to the videotape, and you know, he wanted to say that black, green, and maroon unmarked helicopters continued to fly low over the West Carlton area. So Diane Labanek and other residents came forward saying, yeah, late at night and sometimes during the day, these helicopters fly super low over our properties and they don't know what to think about it. So the Canadian military was interviewed and they denied any flybys, you know, but the only one connection between the, between the helicopters, between the videotape, between the documents, between the sightings is the Guardian. The Guardian must have a connection to this. So the big question is, who is he? Is he an ex-Avro tech, a disgruntled technician who lost their jobs um, 30 years prior? Could he be Canada's Bob Lazar? Could it be an MK Ultra survivor? Or could it just be a crackpot? Who knows? So I'd invite everybody listening to, if you could find it, it's Unsolved Mysteries Season 5, Episode 16. You know, one thing they say about Robert Stack, Stack don't lie. <laughs> so I'd invite you to watch the Unsolved Mysteries Season 5, Episode 16, and make a decision for yourself. So along this boat ride that, that I've been taking you on, we started at Shirley's Bay. We, going, we went west to Malton, Avro. We're coming back closer east, still west though, west of Shirley's Bay, to the Carp area with the Guardian, with the Guardian Mystery. And now we're just going to talk about quickly 
a bit about the river that we that we've been traversing. You know, the very famous, the very mysterious Ottawa River. Now, if you think of it, the Ottawa River has to Ottawa residents, the Ottawa River has always been there. But you have to think about it. Ottawa River is no joke. It's bigger than you think. The Ottawa River rises from Lac de Zutoua out in, in the Laurentians, and it flows west to, as I said before, to Lake Timiskaming, then southeast to Ottawa, Gatineau, uh, Chaudière Falls, Rideau, Gatineau Rivers, and off to the St. Lawrence. So it really is a connection of, you know, pretty close by, you know, it, it, it goes through all the, um, all the hamlets from the Great Lakes all the way to the ocean, essentially. And there have been many strange occurrences on the Otto River, many UFO and Uf USO. So everybody knows what UFOs are, unidentified fallen objects, but USOs are unexplained submergible objects. Very weird. Now I'll go into a something that that I remember that I that I researched again and I and I and I found out that some other strange occurrences that I could tell you about. But one thing I want to find I want to finish Otto River talk about is that the Otto River at some points it's 460 feet deep. That's a great depth. You know, so anything could ha be happening down there. So, for example, July 2009, military helicopters were circling the Otto River around the Champlain Bridge. Again, search and rescue were sighted, military vehicles and the city police were all around the Champlain Bridge. You know, and it seems like they're doing some sort of complex recovery operation. So, Previous, uh, the previous night, people in the Ottawa and Gatineau area reported seeing object, an object streak across the sky, streak across the sky, it's a tongue twister. They reported ob an object streaking across the sky and crashing into the Ottawa River. You know, the object reportedly had lights on it and changed course several times before entering the river. So um, with all those um, uh, departmental um, uh, uh, programs, search and rescue, military vehicles, city police, uh, there were access to sonar and underwater crews. And they, they used that to discover that, yes, there was an object 30 feet below the surface. You know, I'm getting this information from an, Ottawa, from an Ottawa Sun article. And the Ottawa Sun article interviewed Constable Alain Boucher, who confirmed that something was down there. And here's a quote from him. Uh, the size and girth doesn't lead us to think it's any piece of an airplane, fuselage, etc. It could be a rock, could be a bunch of logs. It's hard to say. You know, what was this thing down there? Uh, police then commented that no aircraft reported missing, no debris or oil slicks. Um, were in the water. And so, that being said, the search was terminated, mysteriously enough. No known further investigations into what happened in the river had been reported, and the incident still remains a mystery. So, you know, the Otto River, will it ever give up its, uh, what, it, what it's holding? Will it ever give up what's down there? There's a lot of strange things happening on the Otto River. And the next thing I'm going to talk about it's something that is, you know, close close to the heart here, you know, and this involves a, a, a couple of, and they're they're good friends of mine. I'm vouching for these guys, you know, they're they're good people, honest, hardworking, super intelligent, educated people. I'm going to take you up to a trip from the from the Champlain Bridge 
a bit further west to and the year is 1997 and this good friend couple of mine i won't name them one their names but i am vouching for them you know they're young and they're in love and it's uh, out at Britannia Beach. And there's a bunch of popular, you know, makeout points out in Britannia Beach. And so, you know, being young and in love, they 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 drove down to, uh, to into the parking lot and they drove over the median to get closer to the water. You know, and nestled they nestled their their truck, their their sorry, their car in between some trees and some shrubbery. You know, they found a more secluded place. So, you know, after a couple of minutes, you know, they noticed something in the sky they noticed a stationary rotating series of lights in the sky over the water and in front of them so you know they both were like what is that so they both got out of the, they got out of the car to observe what was in the sky when it suddenly it lowered it lowered down closer to the water and they were able to make out you know a disc shape around 12 feet in diameter and the, this this disc it kept on rotating its lights and it lowered closer and closer to the water and sped forward. And it's coming towards them, kind of like skimming across the water. And it beached itself a mere 15 feet from the couple. You know, and so they, when they approached just a bit closer, scared out of their mind, when they approached a bit closer, the disc suddenly shot backwards again, skimming across the water, and then it submerged. And they could see, and they could they tracked the, uh, the underwater lights briefly before the lights were lost in the murkiness of the Ottawa River. You know, when they first told me that, I was like, wow, that is super interesting. You know, and the following the following couple of weeks, reports were made by people also at Britannia Beach and living in the surrounding area of, of, of seeing these these same lights. But this is these are good friends of mine and they witnessed this disc up close. And this is all happening in Ottawa, on the Ottawa River. What is going on there? You know, there's there's a bunch of commonalities with the with the with the five stories that uh, that I've told you. They're all along the Otto River. You know, Avro it's close to Toronto, but the Otto River has many tributaries all, and 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 water all the way to the Great Lakes, as I said before. Another commonality are discs, flying saucers. Shirley's Bay seems to be the 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 hub for all this. The mystery surrounding Shir Shirley's Bay. You know, they always say to hide, if, if you want to hide best, hide in plain sight. And literally, you could say that Shirley's Bay is hiding something in plain sight. Again, another commonality is the DRDC, the Defense Research and Development Canada. And so there's a lot of strangeness going around Ottawa. And a lot of people don't know what it is. I don't know what it is, but it sure is fun talking about it. You know, the mystery continues. And as I always said, you got to think outside the box. And these flying disks, these UFOs, these USOs, submerged objects, are definitely outside the box. So, you know, that's that's episode number two. And I hope everybody enjoyed it. I want to give some thanks. I want to give some thanks out to the Suburban Followers, Ottawa Rewind, uh, author Jake Davies, author Nick Crow, author Nick Cameron, NBC Studios, Unsolved Mysteries, Robert Stack, Canadian Federal Government, Freedom of Information Act, Andrew King, Ottawa Citizen, Google Maps, and YouTube. You know, I want everybody to start looking up in the sky when they have a chance. There's stuff up there that you'll never be able to explain, and the mysteries continued. So until next time, stay suburban, stay mystified.